Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 74, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. We're going to leave Marcus fighting on the Danube frontier for a couple of weeks while we take a small detour to look at his famous book. Stoic philosophy had already been around for nearly 500 years before Marcus Aurelius wrote his famous work. The founder is generally reckoned to be Zeno of Citium, who we briefly mentioned in chapter 49. Zeno taught philosophy in the open, next to the Stoa Poikila, a painted porch in the Agora in Athens. It's from this that Stoicism gets its name. The Stoics taught that knowledge could be attained through reason. The senses received information from the world, but that information only left its impression on the imagination. It was through reasoning that one could discover the truth of what was. Certainty could not always be achieved. Sometimes reason only led to belief. Certainty could be achieved, but only by verifying belief with other wise men. The main tenet of Stoicism was its worldview and the resultant ethics. In a nutshell, the Stoics believed that what they called nature, effectively the universe, was divided into two parts. The first, matter, was passive. It didn't do anything unless someone or something did something to it. The second, very important part, was fate, which acted on the passive matter. In effect, this meant that people, animals and other living beings, as part of the universe of matter, were as susceptible to fate as any other matter. The Stoics believed that living in the universe meant being in tune with nature. Using reason, it was possible to understand nature and therefore understand how to live within it. They thought that unhappiness and other negative emotions related to a lack of understanding of nature. If somebody was unpleasant or committed an evil act, it was because they didn't use reason. The solution was for anyone to examine how they behaved and see where the behaviour deviated from nature. Thus, Stokes believed the world had to be accepted as it was. There was no point in trying to change it. It was much better simply to live virtuously within it. Living virtuously meant adhering to the four key virtues of Stoicism – wisdom, courage, justice and temperance. Stoicism was therefore more than a philosophical system. It was a way of life. Stoics lived according to the doctrine and tried always to live virtuously and be in tune with nature. It's important to note that although Stoicism meant accepting the world as it was and their inability to change it, they did not believe they could therefore do what they liked. Living virtuously meant living as they should, according to nature. Stoicism was very popular in Roman Greece and in the rest of the empire. One of its most quoted adherents was Epictetus, a Greek who was a slave in Rome. Seneca, the Roman statesman and writer, was an exponent. And, of course, the Emperor Marcus Aurelius left us the text we know as the Meditations, the most complete work of Stoic philosophy, and it is this which we will look at in more detail. It's important to remember that he wrote it as a series of observations and instructions for himself on how to live. He never intended it to be published, and would probably be horrified if he could learn that it had been. The first part of the Meditations is Marcus assessing what he learnt from various members of his family and his friends, tutors and others who influenced him. It's very clear from the praise he heaps upon his adoptive father, Antoninus Pius, that he felt genuine affection and respect for his predecessor as emperor. He credits Antoninus with unfailingly putting the needs of the empire above his own. He says that the former emperor looked after himself, both his body and his mind, and effectively uses him as an example of how to live virtuously. The qualities I admired in my father, writes Marcus, 
were his lenience, his firm refusal to be diverted from any decision he had deliberately reached, which by which he means reached by reasoning, his complete indifference to meretricious honours, his industry, perseverance and willingness to listen to any project for the common good, the unvarying insistence that rewards must depend on merit. Marcus credits his tutor with teaching him not to be afraid of hard work. He was to allow himself only what he needed, not what he wanted, and never listen to gossip and mind his own business. The tutor also advised the future emperor not to support anyone in particular at any sporting event. This Marcus took to heart. He was famously uninterested in the games and didn't care whether the blue team or the green team won. This was very much at odds with his adoptive brother and co-emperor, Lucius Verus, who was a fanatical fan of the Greens. As we've heard, Lucius Verus was very different from his adoptive brother. While Marcus liked to reason and live virtuously, Lucius liked to be spontaneous and to party until he dropped. There were probably many times when he was a bit of a handful and got into scrapes, of which Marcus disapproved. There was, however, genuine warmth between the two men, and Lucius always treated his senior colleague with the utmost respect. There's a small segment of the passage in which Marcus gives thanks to the gods, which sums up Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius's relationship with him. Marcus says, The gods too gave me a brother, whose natural qualities were a standing challenge to my own self-discipline, at the same time as his deferential affection warmed my heart. Most of the content of the meditations, though, is Marcus's thoughts on nature, reason and how to live in the world. He wrote it as if he was talking to himself, so when he says you, he means himself. Many times in the book he reiterates the basic Stoic belief that nature is in charge and there's no point trying to change it. He reflects on how insignificant men are in comparison with the universe. Think of the totality of all being and what a might of it is yours. Think of all the time and the brief instant that is allotted to yourself. Think of destiny and how puny a part of it you are. Thus, according to Stoicism, it's important to use reason to work out how the uni universe is meant to be and what a person should do to live in it virtuously. It's okay, thinks Marcus, to change one's mind about something once new facts are known. Reason, though, must be concerned only with facts and not infected by the fantasies of one's own mind. As Marcus says, facts are facts and are not influenced by what men think, and one must use one's ability to reason to assess the facts and work out how to behave. A very central part of this reasoning is accepting things as they are. There is little point in trying to change nature as nature is in charge. Accepting what is and not trying to alter what can't be altered leads, says Marcus, to a more contented head. He tells himself not to believe that anything that happens over which he has no control is either good for him or bad for him, because this leads to resentment against the gods or bitterness towards other men. This, he thinks, is unhealthy. Particularly important is accepting other people's behaviour for what it is and not allowing oneself to be negatively affected by it. As he puts it, Adapt yourself to the environment in which your lot has been cast and show true love to the fellow mortals with whom destiny has surrounded you. That men of a certain type should behave as they do is inevitable. To wish it otherwise would be to wish that the fig tree would not yield its juice. Remember that tolerance is a part of justice. Leave another's wrongdoing where it is. It is his duty, thinks Marcus, to think kindly of men that offend him. He goes even further than this, though, when he tells himself he should look for his own failings and carefully assess whether he has the same shortcomings. Then he can see what is driving other men and maybe understand them just a little bit better. 
This, he thinks, is the best way to reduce his own anger at anyone who he feels has wronged him. The anger itself, he states, is far more damaging than any perceived insult or wrong that causes it. He even gives himself a daily routine to try and ensure he lives up to these ideals. He writes, Begin each day by telling yourself, Today I shall be meeting with interference, ingratitude, insolence, disloyalty, ill-will and selfishness, all of them due to the offender's ignorance of what is good or evil. None of these things can injure me, for nobody can implicate me in what is degrading, nor will I be angry with my brother man or fall foul of him, for he and I were born to work together. Later he tells himself, dismiss the belief that I have been wronged, and with it will go the feeling. Reject your sense of injury, and the injury itself disappears. Evil comes not from the mind of another, but from the part of you which acts as your assessor of what is evil. Reject its assessment, and all is well. Remember, our anger and annoyance are more detrimental to us than the things which anger and annoy us. Now, this seems to me like a great way to live. Acceptance of other people and who they are, including all of their supposed faults, allows one to put any perceived slight out of one's mind and bear the other person no ill will at all. Marcus goes further with the whole acceptance thing, though. He tells himself to accept any event and simply do what needs to be done without thinking that he has been in any way hard done to. There's no point in bemoaning one's lot in life. One should simply do the right thing and get on with it. Is your cucumber bitter? he asks himself. Throw it away. Are there thorns in your path? Turn aside. That is enough. Do not go on to say, why were things of this sort ever brought into the world? Marcus also counsels himself against viewing suffering as evil or pleasure as good. He admits that nature may be unfair and fail to reward virtuous people with good things and those who engage in vice with bad things. Bad people often enjoy pleasure and good people frequently suffer heartbreak and physical pain. This is just the way it is, he thinks. He counsels himself not to pray to the gods to be granted what he wants or to avoid what he doesn't want. When another man prays, grant that I may have that woman, he writes, let your own prayer be grant that I may not lust to have her. Where he begs, spare me the loss of my precious child, you should beg rather to be delivered from the terror of losing him. This last point, where Marcus tells himself he should pray only not to be fearful of losing a child, rather than ask for his children to be safe from harm, is particularly poignant. Marcus and his wife had 14 children, only five of which outlived their father. Many of them had already died by the time he was writing these words while encamped on the Danube frontier. This part of Stoicism must have been particularly hard for him as he loved his children. Later in the meditations he reminds himself of the words of the Roman Stoic Epitectus telling him to kiss each child every evening while reminding himself that tomorrow it may be dead. A considerable proportion of the meditations is spent contemplating Marcus's own insignificance in comparison with nature and what that means. For him, it means he should live every day for that day alone and not worry too much about the past or the future. He constantly reminds himself that one day he will die and once he's dead he will be no different from any other man. A dead man is a dead man, whoever he may have been when he was alive. Live not as though there were thousands of years ahead of you. Fate is at your elbow. Make yourself good while life and power are still yours. Remember that man lives only in the present, in this fleeting instant. All the rest of his life is either past and gone, or not yet revealed. Never let the future disturb you. 
you will meet it, if you have to, with the same weapons of reason which today arm you against the present. Live each day as though it is your last, never flustered, never apathetic, never adopting a pose for effect. Marcus tells himself not to gaze into the future and worry about what might happen. Instead, he tells himself that any misfortune that happens to present itself should be dealt with without seeing it as unendurable. Remember, he says, it is not the weight of the future or the past that is pressing upon you, but ever the present alone. Part of living in the day for Marcus was living as far as possible without sin and certainly without telling lies. He tells us that injustice and untruthfulness are sins, as are the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It is even sinful to tell a lie unwittingly, as this disrupts the harmony of nature and indicates that the teller is neglecting the faculties that nature gave him by being unable to distinguish between truth and falsehood. His instructions to himself are very clear and simple. If it is not the right thing to do, do not do it. If it is not the truth, do not say it. And, waste no time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. Marcus constantly reminds himself there is little point looking into the future and worrying about what other people might think of him or how they will remember him. Once dead, it doesn't matter. He is no more significant or important than anyone else, whoever they may have been or however long they may have lived. Think, he says, of the times of Vespasian and what do you see? Men and women busy marrying, bringing up children, sickening, dying, fighting, feasting, flattering, bragging, envying, scheming, grumbling at fate, loving, hoarding, coveting thrones and dignities. Of all that life, not a trace survives today. Or come forward to the life of Trajan. It is the same. That life too has perished. Names that were formerly household words are virtually archaic today. Scipio and Cato, Augustus too, and even Hadrian and Antoninus. Even to men whose lives were a blaze of glory, this comes to pass. What, after all, is immortal fame? An empty, hollow thing. In death, Alexander of Macedon's end differed not at all from that of his stable boy. Either both were received into the same generative principle of the universe, or both alike were dispersed into atoms. He sums up his feelings about life and death and what it all means beautifully. Were you to live to 3,000 years or even 30,000, remember that the only life a man can lose is the one he is living at the moment, and he can have no other life than the one he loses. This means the longest life and the shortest amount to the same thing. For the passing minute is every man's equal possession, but what has gone by is not ours. Our loss at death, therefore, is limited to that one fleeting instant, since no one can lose what is already past, nor what is still to come, for how can he be deprived of what he does not possess? When the longest and the shortest lived of us come to die, their loss is precisely equal, for the sole thing of which man can be deprived is the present, since this is all he owns, and nobody can lose what is not his. In the end, for Marcus Aurelius, it all came down to being in tune with nature and trying one's best to understand it. Nature had a plan and a purpose for everything. As he says, Even the vagaries of chance have their place in nature's scheme. You yourself are part of that universe. What keeps the whole world in being is change, not merely the change of the basic elements, but also the change of the large formations they compose. For Marcus, this means there's no need to be afraid of anything, or to try and go against what nature intends. Thus, he needs to accept his own death with the same equanimity as any other event. 
On these thoughts rest content, he writes. When your end comes, don't murmur, but meet it with a good grace and with unfeigned gratitude in your heart to the gods. At the start of the year 180, Marcus Aurelius was probably not contemplating his own death. After all, his way of life taught him to live in the present. By March, though, he couldn't avoid it. He contracted an illness, probably the Antonine Plague. It was clear to most that he wasn't going to make it. The Antonine Plague was definitely part of nature's vagaries of chance, and it didn't choose its victims. It caused death indiscriminately, taking no account of the age or position of its victims. Just as Marcus said. Next time, we'll take a look at some Roman achievements in engineering and science. After that, we'll return to our story and find out what actually happens when Marcus Aurelius finally dies. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.